The most downloaded show here on CFO Bookshelf is a conversation we had with Ben Lamort a year ago talking about OKRs. And it was Ben who recommended that I start following the work and writing of Christina Wadke. I first watched her excellent presentation called The Executioner's Tale. I then read Radical Focus and more recently, the team that managed itself. Christina recently updated her book, Radical Focus, with a second edition. And even if you know nothing about OKRs, I promise you'll gain valuable insights from this interview. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My visit with Christina Watke is coming up next. I'm anxious to talk to Christina about her second edition of Radical Focus, one of the best books ever written on OKRs. I just had to ask her about her dream job as a professor at Stanford University. It's funny because I didn't know it was my dream job until I ended up there. I was like, I really like teaching and I live in Palo Alto and there's a pretty good university down the street. I wonder if I can figure out how to teach there. And it worked out for me, which is wonderful. Um, so gosh, it's, it's, it's hard to describe it at first. I didn't see the difference and then it's all shown up. For example, I used to think that all geniuses are also terrible people. They're jerks, but, um, no, you have never seen such a collection of incredibly brilliant, ethical, kind people. I am so lucky in my colleagues in computer science, um, It's funny for me to be in computer science, but I love it there because I feel like I can bring um, a different point of view than my colleagues because I have this background in industry and, uh, you know, the insights into design. But more than anything, I love learning and I am in the best place to learn because I can just show up for lunch and start to understand more about AI because computer science loves their lunch meetings. So just brilliant people coming by just to explain things. And I just feel like I'm always growing and learning and becoming my best self. For example, I was feeling a little burned out this quarter. Being online has been hard. And so I thought, you know, maybe I should watch a bunch of my colleagues teaching videos. I know that may sound insane, but um, because I'm online a lot, but just watching him talk about a subject that I really care about, which is social software, like has rekindled my joy of attacking problems like how do people work well together and how does software either make it easier or make it harder. And so I feel like at any moment I could dive into a subject incredibly deeply. You know, if I decided I wanted to know more about great art, I could just pop in for that. And for me, that's an all-you-can-eat smorgasbord. It's I just adore it. I like the knowledge. I am a huge fan of your first book. And let me back up. When I was putting together the list of guests I wanted to interview, the first 50 guests, you were actually in the top 15. So when you said yes, I, you just made uh, my day. I do want to quickly explain how I came across your name uh, Ben Lamort, I consider him a friend. I've known him from another uh, business. He sold software to me. I've learned a lot from him. The first thing he told me as he was getting into OKRs, he said, Mark, you've got to listen to, to Christina and your executioner's tale. It's out on Vimeo. It may be elsewhere, but I'm not going to be a geek and say, here's how many times I've listened to it, but I just thought you nailed it. And then Radical Focus, I, yeah, I, I admit I've read it more than once. And when Radical Focus 2.0 came out, I hit buy uh, with pleasure. And I just finished it, I think, last Friday or Thursday. So loved uh, the team that managed itself. I at least want to give Ben just a quick shout out uh, because that's how I got introduced uh, to you and your great work. Oh, I consider Ben a really good friend. And I have to say um, there was a time where he and I were the entire OKR space. At least it felt like that. And so being able to have someone like Ben and then uh, Philippe Castro, of course, people you can talk to who are really open and honest about what's working and what's not working, they're gold. And Ben is just one of the kindest, sweetest people I know on top of that. So there we are. Yeah, he's a great, he's, he's a great 
teacher and and he communicates so well. You may you may push back on me just a little bit, but I work with a lot of CEOs in that three million to hundred million dollar range. And I will tell them, if you want to learn about OKRs, the first book you start with is Radical Focus. Start there. Now, if you want to go deeper, if you have someone on your team that wants to go deeper, okay, now read Ben's book, but go back to Radical Focus. Now I can say Radical Focus 2.0. That's the starting point. I'm, we, we won't, I'm not going to ask you to comment. I did not like John Doerr's book. I thought he could have knocked it out of the ballpark. He should have. He's better at talking about it. That was not a good book. So ignore his book. Read yours instead. It's not a book for execution, to be honest. And there are a couple of errors in execution that people have really struggled with. So I'd say, yes, read it, but be careful around the examples. I think Philippe Gastro wrote the best review on it, which is this is a wonderful book, except don't make your key results into tasks. That's just never going to get you the results you're seeking. It's, it's, it's unhelpful advice. But if I can say about a book that it's a wonderful book, just don't do this one thing. That's pretty good <laughs> in my book. I, it was you who said in a recent conversation we had with you and Ben a few months ago, I think it was you, Christina, this is the first time I've heard someone say, you don't always want to do OKRs. So one of my questions for you as we get into the book, OKRs will only work if fill in the blank. I don't want to depress anybody, but it's kind of a list. I mean, um, when you asked me that before, I thought, the first thing I thought was you have to trust your people. If you don't trust your people to make good decisions, then don't even bother with OKRs. You're just entering into OKR theater. It's just terrible. So that's why I wrote the team that managed itself because I think a lot of people don't hire very well. And the first step in trusting your team is hiring the best people you can possibly find. And I ended up pulling out a chapter from a team that managed itself into radical focus too, yes. because it is so critical to make sure that you're not being sloppy in your hiring. Right. And so if you find really great people and then you grow them, then you shouldn't be worried about handing off difficult challenges. You shouldn't have to feel like you have to micromanage everything. And maybe not every single person is uh, an A player. I mean, I think Moneyball taught us that there's an incredible value to a good B player, but you have to have really solid teams that are a mix of that. And so, yeah, you gotta trust your people to be able to figure things out without you. And I think that's why founders struggle a lot because founders, really have a hard time not doing everything and not controlling everything. Um, I think psychological safety is a piece of the puzzle, um, but you get that by trusting people. Um, the latest thing I've been seeing, though, is that as OKRs become more popular, they're being adopted by companies that don't aren't doing modern product management practices. And so all they've got is OKRs, but they haven't figured out Agile. They haven't instrumented their products in order to get good data. They don't know how to do metrics thinking. They don't have a lean style hypothesis and testing hypothesis mindset. And the, the book Radical Focus is really built as another plank of a larger ship, which is modern product management, right? Um and so it could be any kind of product. It could be a service. It could be a Mexican restaurant. Um, as I always like to refer to one of my early clients who was just one of the most delightful people I've ever worked with, you know. So it doesn't have to be a tech product, but you still have to go in um, thinking iteratively. And that's really at the key of everything. It's like you're not going to sit down, plan it, ship it, and it's going to be awesome. That's just not going to happen. There's only one Steve Jobs and he's dead. So let's move on, Right. So now we've got the situation where putting a product in the market is very risky. So you want to start thinking about how you reduce risk, which is where you start moving to small launches, iterations, everything. And that's where OKRs really fit in because it's very iterative in a, how do we learn as an organization what we're capable of? How do we learn as an organization about our customers? How do we learn 
as an organization about what products work and what don't. I mean, I think the way I approach OKRs is they're really a tool for organizational learning. And to be honest, the learning organization is the winning organization, period. I'm going to switch up the questions a little bit because I was going to ask you what's new in Radical Focus 2.0, but let's hold off on that. Let's just jump right into the the fable that you have uh, in the book, which I think is brilliant. So I'm just going to get this off my chest. I love Hannah. Hannah's awesome. Jack is an idiot. Can I say that? Now, now he he changed. He He started changing at the end, but he's an idiot. Uh, Eric, Eric is a creep. <laughs> the, the guy is a creep. Uh, he is like, uh, he's cancer. Of course, we know, I'm not going to tell what happens to him. R- Raphael loved the dude. He's awesome. And, and Jim, uh, Jim might've been uh, John Dore for all. I, I like Jim. Now he, he's kind of the, the he's kind of like Yoda, uh, he doesn't show up, but he has some some sage advice. So, where did that story come from? Or were you? Is that partly true? Are are you Hannah? By the way, oh, I'm certainly not Hannah. Um, but maybe on a good day, I might be. I can relate to her a lot. Um, I think it came it came out of um, a couple of startups that I was advising. Um, one was former students, and sort of starting to think about what people struggle with with startups. I have to admit that meeting, I've been in that Starbucks pitching back when I had a startup. So I like, it's really fun to write about all these places in Silicon Valley that I've actually, you know, had coffee in or walked around. Their office is based on an office for another startup that I worked for as sort of an interim head of product for a little while. Um, it's really a, a, a combination. Jim is everything that annoys me about designers and or not Jim, not Jim. Sorry. Um, <laughs> what am I saying? <gasps> Brain fart. No, 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 no. Um, Jack, Jack. Jack, Jack. I'm just, I'm just my, I, 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 too much context switching. I was just talking to a student about game design. Um, so yeah, Jack is actually everything that drives me crazy about designers. And I get to do that because I was one for so many years. So this is, you know, making fun of my own self in some ways. Um, but also I think a lot of people want titles just because, and I've seen this because they want the title and then they get the job and they're like, wow, do I have to do the job as well as get the title? Um, and I think that's Jack eventually realizes that he's not, doesn't want that job. He has a job that he wants and he'll be good at. And as soon as he stops doing the job, he's bad at, he'll be fine. Eric is based on real people. And I won't say where, but trust me, I've known Eric. Um, I wanted to reach inside that book and just wring his little neck. Right? Oh, my gosh, yes, indeed. And I wanted to wring other people's necks in the past, but luckily one can just fire them instead, and it's a lot less likely to get you prosecuted. (laughs) Um, And then there's, you know, Hannah is really based on some of the most amazing students I've had that have gone out and done amazing and done amazing things. I'm sorry, I'm using amazing a lot, but... I just feel so impressed with some of these young women. And um, it was funny because I, I reopened the book to rewrite it. And I looked at the drawings I did and I'm like, I didn't make her very pretty because <laughs> I had a student post right. And I'm like, you know what? That's awesome. Like, how good is it to look at a female CEO who doesn't look like Sheryl Sandberg, who's just trying to make things work, you know, she's just getting stuff done. And that to me was nice. And, and Raphael is just I don't know. He just is like, he's based on a goofy friend of mine who I just adore to death. And like, you forget how brilliant he is because he's such a goofball. And then all of a sudden he's like, but also let's do things this way. And you're like, Oh yeah. He's a, he's a smart goofball. He he's a get her done. Somebody came in at better works and uh, sorry, the better works conference, you know, um, whatever it is, I've met someone and they said, I'm team Raphael. And I was like, there's teams now. What? <laughs> well, for people who have not read the book, uh, simple story arc, you've got Hannah and Jack, they are co-owners, co-founders of a tea company, and they have this deep connection to tea growers. Uh, the audience or the customer base are restaurants who sell tea, but they begin to realize that it's, faster, more efficient to go through distributors as opposed directly to restaurants. Oh, and by the way, they have some terrible tech issues 
where the restaurants cannot key in their orders. And then that's where the OKRs comes into to play. We'll, we'll let readers read it, but it's a good, very, very good uh, uh, plot to start with, which leads to my next question. Even though they were a startup, OKRs are not just for startups. I'm leading the I'm leading the witness, but can you now say that OKRs is for larger organizations? Is that a true statement, Christina? We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Um, I When I first started doing it, I feel like I, I modeled a lot of my choices about the book on Eric Reese's How He Developed the Lean Startup book. So I wrote a bunch of blog posts just like he did. I made a prototype book that I sold just like he did. I got tons of feedback from the early readers and made a good book. Um, and just like he did, I suddenly discovered people wanted to use it that weren't startups. And that, like, I was like, I don't even know how that would work. I don't even know. You can't cascade in enterprises at all. I was like, I don't know if you can do this. And so through working with bigger and bigger companies as they showed up on my door, um, I'm very grateful a lot of my clients were willing to partner with me. Like I know a lot about OKRs. They know a lot about their business. Together we can figure out how our OKR is going to work in this company. And that's why I had to write Radical Focus too, because I'd learned so much about big companies. And there's so many ways to get them wrong in big companies. I mean, you can get it wrong in a startup, but it's epically damaging to do it wrong in a big company because you can actually get a company to reject the whole concept completely and then you don't get the value of it. People can get so angry that you've done it so badly and you think, oh, employees, what can we do? But if you've got an entire company mad at you, you're going to listen to your employees. So I think what's really critical to think about it is um, when you're bringing it to a big company, how are you going to do it? You've got to bring it slow. You've got to introduce it with pilots. You can't necessarily give it to every single person. You want to avoid all the difficult situations when you start. Like you don't want to have individual OKRs. You don't want to give it to service groups. You want to make it as pared down as humanly possible, maybe as startup-y as possible. Like I think that people who use it with some of their intramurners get really good results or high-performing product teams that are in sort of their blitzscaling uh, mode. Those people can do get a lot with OKRs, um, but just trying to slap it on everybody as a tool to control their behavior or squeeze out more productivity. It's just, it's not built that way and it doesn't end well. I know blanket statements can be dangerous, but let's take that bigger company. We'll say big is bigger than a hundred million. And that could be petty cash. That could be petty cash for some, uh, some businesses, but let's just say, we'll even say over 75 million where you have at least a hundred employees, Let's say, okay, yes to, okay, we're saying yes to Christina. We're going to have you come in uh, during the summer break when you're maybe not as busy at Stanford University. The question I would have is why are they interested in OKRs? What are they saying no to or what are they replacing? Or because I had the assumption that bigger businesses have some type of structure and management in place. So when they say yes to OKRs, is it because something else has not been working? Um, so when a big company comes to me, I think often they don't really know what they want. They want things to be better. And they've heard that OKRs make things better. And a lot of the conversations I have with people is, what do you mean by better? What's not going right, right now? You know, what, Let's talk about this. And most of the time... It is a shift from a culture of reporting and tracking to a culture of goals and learning, if you will. 
And so tracking is awesome, but I find that a lot of people just track because you're supposed to, you know, you get these long status emails. Oh my gosh. When I worked at um, MySpace, I actually had a dedicated headcount of someone who just mostly just collected all the status emails and put them together into one long email for me that I then sent to my VP. And I was a general manager then. And one week I sent it, but I forgot to read it to make sure there wasn't a problem. And then I went and read it and I was like, oh gosh, there's something really bad coming through here. And the VP didn't say anything because he, so I thought, well, wait, he's not reading it. I'm not reading it. Nobody's enjoying writing it. What is this tool actually doing, right? And there's a different status of mail email approach in the book that's super pared down because it knows what it's doing, so to speak. Um, it's just like, okay, our OKRs, do we think we're going to make them or are we worried about something? And then what are you doing this week towards the OKRs or to the health metrics in case things are going sideways somewhere? And what did you do last week and what did you learn from it? And so I can write one of these status emails in like 10, 15 minutes. It's not that hard. I can read it in, uh, in two minutes and I can read multiple people's status emails, which means I can start connecting things across the company. I think it's one of the best things, um, one of the best tools that, that came out of um, working with OKRs with so many different companies was just this, like, let's take something big and hairy and simplify it. In the past companies that you work for, were they using any type of software other than Excel? Uh some use PowerPoint <laughs> or, or PowerPoint. Um, do, Cause I know there's some OKR software out there on the market and it's like, do you, do you really need software? I mean, I get it in terms of tracking some of the numbers I'm using air quotes, but I, I get that aspect, but is software a requirement when it comes to OKRs? Software needs to be the last thing you buy. I mean, I always like to use the analogy of it's New Year, and so you're ready to get healthy, so you buy a, 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 you know, an exercise bike. And then do you use it? Do you end up putting it on Craigslist in March? You know, um, So what you want to do is start exercising and trying a bunch of different things, like maybe you like dance classes, maybe you like running, maybe you like walking, maybe you are always at your desk, so you need a stationary treadmill. But until you know how exercise is going to fit into your life, you can't buy anything. And OKRs are very much that way. You have to first get it working, get over all the cultural problems, use whatever software you have. Somebody once told me they were doing their OKRs in Trello. And I was like, I can't even imagine how that works, but sure. Why? <laughs> you know, at least they look at Trello every day. Yeah. You know, something you look at every day, that's probably a good spot for it. So I always tell my clients, just put off buying software until you know how to do OKRs at your company. And then you'll know what software is the right software for you because it'll either support how you work or it won't support how you work. But the ones that I've seen work best have had a strong dashboard component. In fact, I would prefer dashboard software to OKR software most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. In the book, you may have mentioned this in the first edition, but as I was going over the second edition last week, you mentioned about goals, a 50-50 chance of achieving the goal. I had not, I either it didn't stick, but it's like, that is, that's, I, want, I don't want to say harsh, but that's fascinating. And you obviously, you wrote that. So you want it to be hard. These goals do need to be hard. So I guess the managers and the teams going in know that, there's not a good chance we'll hit the goal all the way. That's a good thing, right? Yes. And because it's such a hard goal, you have to figure out how are you not going to destroy morale, right? Which is why the Friday celebrations are so critical because you need to be celebrating progress. And it's so important to not tie performance reviews to achieving the OKRs because immediately nobody's ever going to try anything hard ever again. So by encouraging people to feel, and 50-50 is actually a, it's an intense goal. I've found that getting people 
to really move forward, I have to say things like you're only allowed to have one OKR or you have to feel like you have a 50-50 chance of making it because there's an instinct, and I don't know where we learn it, maybe too many managers have been mean to too many people, of being scared to do the hard thing. And so I set really aggressive goals and I try to take away all the punishment for being wrong. And that combination I've seen with client after client after client mostly works. Now, here's the thing, as from that first one, and it wasn't the first one, right? From the first one to the second one, second book, I've learned that there are companies where that's a terrible thing. So um, I was chatting with a, a friend of mine who's at Medium and said they tried OKRs and the team would kill themselves making the OKRs. They would work you know, all night. They would, just, they would just push too hard. And so they were starting to get really bad burnout. So they quit using OKRs. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you, you threw the bathwater out of the window and you took the baby with it. Like, how could you do that? Because I now talk to people and say, okay, you know, if you don't know anything about what you're capable of, yeah, go for 50-50. I have a 50% chance of making that. But as you start to get knowledge of yourself as a team and as a company, then I start talking about yoga stretches. So I don't know if you've ever taken a yoga class, but the teachers often say, okay, you know, do a stretch, a gentle stretch. Don't, if it hurts, you're going too far, but just try to get that stretch. And I feel like that's what some companies really need is they need the yoga stretch talk because they can't get excited about ridiculous goals the way a lot of people in the Silicon Valley do. The Silicon Valley is like, that's impossible. And somebody else says, oh, that's interesting. I think I'll try that. Um, but there are other places where it's not going to be a good cultural fit, at which point I recommend the yoga stretch. I don't recommend committed and aspirational ever. And there's a very simple reason for that. It's that our brains can't hold very much information all the time. Our working memory is terrible. We only actually can hold three or four things in it. So the simpler and fewer your OKRs are, the more likely you're going to be holding them in your head. And the reason you want to hold them in your head, and by the end of the quarter, they're in long-term memory. It's not a big problem, but in the beginning of the quarter, it's hard. And if you hold them in the head, them in your head, anytime you're in a meeting where people are saying, can you take this on? You could say, no, actually, that doesn't, that's not what we're trying to do. And I really don't have the extra space for it. Or when you're sitting there going, okay, I've got five minutes. I'm going to try to get something done. Where am I spending that five minutes? I was talking to a woman who's in charge of a service group, right? And they have very, very little free time, but they love the, she loved the idea of OKRs because she's like, oh, but if I have 15 minutes in the afternoon, I know exactly what to do. I don't have to think through the 20 things that I know I should do. I can say, I'm just going to do this thing. So they are really good at focus, but not if you have 15 of them or 20 of them or 50 of them. Like if you have to keep an Excel sheet to keep track of all your OKRs, they're not going to serve you very well. Is it fair to say one big objective per quarter and about three to five goals around that objective? Is that generally what you see? And I That's what I see being very successful is one objective, three to five key results. That said, again, big companies, it ends up being per business model. So, and you want to think strategically. This is a huge mistake. People use OKRs for every single thing they do. But I would argue that OKRs are best for things that you might not do that you need to do for your company's sustainability. So let's be honest. You're going to invoice your clients, hopefully. You are going to, you know, uh, do your books. You, you know, the law will control you on some things. There's a bunch of things that will always get done and you don't have to worry about. And then you're going to react when people are yelling at you, like people are demanding something. Now you're probably going to react to that. So the problem is those important but not urgent things that are just so vital to the lifeblood of a company. And so if you put an OKR around that, you don't need 20 OKRs because you're not covering everything. You're just saying this quarter we are going to become awesome at this new skill or this, this quarter we're going to become 
really committed to this new product or this quarter we're going to start moving into this new market. You know, all these things that are supposed to happen later, you make them happen now. You say now, this quarter. We're not going to have time to hit this because it's in the book. It's outstanding. It was, And it also came up during our last conversation, but your BCG matrix where you bring up that, by the way, that is just brilliant. And for each quadrant, you add an E to it. So for example, the cash cow probably doesn't make sense to use OKRs. You're going to use your health metrics. You'll keep, and you're always going to, exactly, KPIs. But the areas of, of probably the, the areas where you want to exploit or explore those are the two areas where, okay, let's throw some OKRs at that. And again, I just, that concept is, am I allowed to use the word brilliant with you, Christina? Well, I read an article that said that women are almost never called brilliant geniuses or thought leaders. So I'm open to all three of those words at any time. They're wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying they're wrong. Hey, I want to back up real quickly. Uh, earlier when we were talking about uh, the the cadence you mentioned the Friday meetings and there are generally two meetings per week when it comes to OKRs. Can you, and by the way, it doesn't have to be Monday, Friday. It doesn't have to be Tuesday, but let's just using the theme in your book. What's the Monday meeting? What's the Friday meeting? I think that's important. So there's a, a, a wonderful concept that I learned about from Dan Pink's book, When, about time. And they're called temporal landmarks. And temporal landmarks are all the ways we structure our time so we know where we are in time, the way landmarks tell us where we are in space. So everything in the OKR cadence is basically based on understanding that all companies have temporal landmarks of some sort. And so if yours are different, if they're not Monday through Friday, if they're not traditional quarters, of course, you're going to adapt them to your own temporal landmarks. But for this, Monday is usually within a business. It's like moving out of rest period, focusing on things, asking yourself what's going to happen. And then Fridays within a business are usually like all about getting to the weekend. And so the Friday meaning encourages looking back and saying, what have we done? What's great? And it has a much higher happiness factor. It's not as critical. And so it's always this moving back and forth between let's get serious. Let's make sure we're not making the same mistakes to, oh, you guys are awesome. We're doing awesome things. And again, that balances out the intensity of trying to do ridiculous things. It keeps you from getting depressed. But that's also why OKRs um, in the radical focus approach are based on quarters. Same thing. Businesses run on quarters, so it's much easier to just slide into those pre-existing rhythms. And it's actually a really good amount of time. I was reading about Spotify, and say they said um, we find three months is about as often as people can put up with deep retrospectives. Three months is long enough to get things done, but not so long that you can't remember what happened. And so by closing the quarter looking through your OKRs, grading them, or scoring them, or I'm starting to move towards a new system, which is uh, is a, more of a learning cycle, but I don't have a cute name yet, so we'll see. Um, because I don't think it's about grading or scoring, but just having a really good retrospective where we said, what, what, have, what can we learn from this last three months? And then you turn around saying, now that we've learned, let's look forward. And people are always really excited when I say, oh, guess what? You can do the same OKR for more than one quarter, as long as you stop and learn. Or you can have the same objective, but change some of the key results. Or you can have the same key results and change some of the objective. Like there's not a law here. It's just about what do you have to do to become the kind of company that you want to become? Great point. Hey, as we're, as time is running out, I want to throw a couple of quick questions. Individual OKRs, See, I, I just had to say that I wanted to pause because see, I get to see your face. No one else can. I wanted to hear, I wanted to see your response, but individual OKRs versus role canvas. Uh, what's the difference? I was really shocked how many people would say, well, if I can't use OKRs for performance review, what can I do? And I was like, really? Oh, okay. Um, 
but it really did cause me to stop and think about how are we doing performance review? What does that look like? What's the good side, the bad side of it? As somebody who's managed lots of people and, of course, been managed, um, I really wanted to think about what's worked and what's not worked. Um, and then the role canvas is actually a, a simple idea, which is how do we move from hiring and firing to be a start-stop into something that's much more of a learning cycle? And so when you go to hire someone, hopefully you have someone who's already inhabiting that role to give you a lot of information, but you don't always. And then it's about, uh, okay, what were their what, how will they contribute to the OKRs when you're in the hiring state? And how, what do they have to do to keep the lights on? So you can see the resemblance already to OKRs and health metrics, right? We've got the hope that this person in this role will make some of our OKRs come true, or maybe not, because there's some, like you're hiring a new lawyer, it's entirely possible they can't affect OKRs. It's entirely possible they can, you know better than I. But then we also want to ask, what are those roles and responsibilities? Are they good? Are they growing their people? Are they growing as a person? And then the knowledge and skills, um, knowledge being domain knowledge and skills being literally, you know, abilities. And by thinking about these core pieces and simplifying it radically, then you can figure out how can I ask some questions that let me know whether or not this person fits. And it's really, really, really critical, again, to keep this as simple as humanly possible, but for a different reason. Um, I don't know if you know, but women will only apply to jobs when they're 100% a fit, but men will apply to jobs when they're like 50 to 60% a fit. So by keeping it a very short list and making it very clear that you're totally open to other skills and other things people bring to the table, it makes it easier for someone who says, I'm not a fit to be able to try. And if they try, then you might get a diverse company. Imagine that diversity. That could be really useful, especially if you're making things for, you know, women. <laughs> so there's that. Then there's um, the idea that why do we throw away the job posting the moment we hire? What if instead we take that role canvas and now instead of questions, we're going to have comments like every week your employee and you have a one-on-one, -on -one, I hope, and you can go through and look at that and go, okay, are they contributing? Is this even relevant? Are they being good at filling their role? Is there a place where they could grow? Do they need more people skills? Do I need to send them to a seminar on whatever? You know, you can every week be thinking about that as well as listening to what they think they need because you're on the same page because you have the same very, very simple description of the job. And you can even evolve the job. Yay. And then when it's time for a review, guess what? You have all these wonderful notes from your one-on-ones. You can look them over and you can say, okay, do I promote this person? Do I demote this person? Do I give them feedback? And this will go over and over. But then imagine, let's say you've had this person for two years, you need to replace them you know exactly what that role is. It's all written down and you don't have to just grab some stupid, stupid description off the internet. So I have found it's working really, really well. I, I'm really touched by people who have adopted it just straight from the book. Um, and I've gotten so much good feedback about how it's working, um, not just from my direct clients, but just people emailing me ra randomly. And I think if I could just make hiring, firing, and feedback a little better. I'd feel like I'd done something good for, for people's happiness at work. I have one suggestion for your role canvas and it's more global. It's not just for this particular role, but maybe on the right side, attitudes we love and maybe a column on the far left. I call it a gutter attitudes we don't like. And so you, you've got some, um, you just got some values there that that we're looking for. But anyway, it's just, just an idea, but I love, I think it's outstanding. You know, Mark, um, I have, when I talk to my, the companies I, I'm coaching her, they say, um, we added one more thing. And that's okay. You know, there's a reason that all my drawings look like handwriting. I want you to draw on them too. I want to be open and say, hey, you can cross this out. You could add another box. Um, just remember that every single thing you add is adding complexity sure. and adding complexity makes things brittle. So you want to be very thoughtful about what you add. But values is a great one. I tell my students never work for a company who doesn't have the same values as you. So you said in the book, it's near, I think it's near the end of the book, don't give up. You are likely 
to fail the first time you do these and you're smiling. Uh, but it's true. Don't give up. So a small company, mid-sized company, they may screw it up, but your advice, it's okay. You learn from it, right? What you had to learn at least one thing. So I'm going to shut up, uh, add to that. Don't give up. I mean, one of my life mottos is make new mistakes because if you're not making mistakes, you're not living, you're not innovating, you're not trying. However, if you're making the same mistake over and over again, you're just dumb and you're not learning. So you really do want to not give up. Um, And there's a tendency to say, oh, I hear OKRs will make everything perfect. Okay, let's try them out. At the end of the quarter, we're like, uh, yeah, that didn't work for us. Get rid of it. And that's just heartbreaking to me because unlike some folks, like I don't think radical focus is a religion. You don't have to adhere to it exactly as I've written it down. What I've written down is a really good best practice, super simple, can get you going. And then I want you to start mucking with it. Like don't change it before you've at least tried it. But then once you've tried it, please change it. Please adapt it. Keep iterating. I mean, I've been in software for so long that I know that the only successful software is software that's been iterated over and over again as you learn more. And why would you not do that for your own organizational approaches, right? Why not learn? It's it's better. You just said something that I was very impressed with. Several years ago, I was in an OKRs LinkedIn group, and I made a comment about OKRs, making a suggestion, and it wasn't part of the OKRs so-called religion. And I felt like I was being chastised. There, there's a there's a New Testament uh, comment. The writer says, well, some people follow Apollo, some people follow Cephas, some people follow Paul, and people are missing the bigger point. And, and this is not a religion. I, I, I'm just repeating this, right? Absolutely. I will say that there's a very, very, very short list of things that I really don't think you should change. And it's, it's, it's really small. It's objectives should inspire because there are people for whom metrics don't inspire. Key results have to be results, not tasks. I've written extensively on it um, for free for cost because that's the biggest idea. Right. And you must have a cadence. You must check in regularly. That is, I would say that that's more important than how you set. That might be it. Um, I might add on, if I had an addendum, it's like, yeah, don't do not do it to individuals <laughs> until you know what you're doing and maybe not even then. But that's, that's just hardly an addendum. It's like, yeah, just set your goals, know what success looks like, and check in at least once a week and probably two or three times would be better. Last comment about the book, and it's getting into your other book, your job is not done. You're not off the hook. You've read Radical Focus 2.0. You're not done. You've got to read the team that managed itself. One person said that's not an OKRs book, and I about blew a gasket. It's like, damn right it is. Um, and also, this is a book that had, again, this is me, the analyst speaking, the, the team that managed itself had to be written because it's the only book in your space where it really addresses the people aspect of OKRs. Am I, tell me if I'm uh, right or wrong. You're probably read more widely than I, I guess, because I can't think of anything either. You know, um, that's the problem is I kept saying, well, you can't OKR instead of management. So the the question then is, what's the management philosophy approach, what have you, that works with OKRs, right? Okay, so we've got goals. What else do we need? Well, we need roles. We've talked about the critical uh, nature of uh, hiring the right people to making OKRs work and the continuous learning cycle. And then there's norms. How are we going to interact with each other? And this becomes more and more important as companies become global, as you start to run into different cultures. And so then you just take that cadence and you're just constantly learning from it. And I would say it was another one of those, how simple can I make this? It is three times as long as radical focus um, because people are complicated, but it's not 40 volumes. So there's that. And it still has a story. And that's the secret is I love, love, love stories. We learn 
better from stories. It solves my what I call my teacher's trifecta, which is attention, comprehension, and retention. So the story, people are like, yes, please tell me a story. That's attention, right? Comprehension, because it's ideas placed in real life experiences, you understand why the system is the way it is. And then retention, our brains are literally wired to remember story. And you will ditch facts that don't fit into the story. So by creating a story in your head, when I go in at the back half and say, okay, here's the nitty gritty how it works, you have a mental model in your head to fit all that new information and you're much more likely to remember it. So believe me, um, these books have been written based on instruction theory, learning theory, and they're designed to get in your head and make a house there and live there so that you always have some information when you really need it. This is probably why I have the impact because you've heard me say it to you before verbally and in writing, but if Patrick Lencioni were writing a book on OKRs, the book you would have written is The Team That Managed Itself. You don't get to comment because I'm right. I, I'm, I'm right. Sorry, Christina. Hey, th- this, is, this is CFO Bookshelf, and so I get to ask you, what are some of your favorite books? What 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 are some books you love reading? Doesn't have to be business books, but when you have time, what do you find yourself reading? Or what have been some of your favorite books over the years? Oh my gosh, you you know that my personal best of reading is two hundred fifty books in one year, but that was the year I was trying to understand diagramming and drawing. So a lot of those books were mostly pictures. My yeah, my normal amount is I would say about eighty five to one hundred twenty books a year. A so I read a. I read a lot of books. I read all the time. I read for a living because I read all the books that I need to read for teaching. And because I believe so much in diversity, when other people can just grab the standard book for a class, I'll read five or six different things because I'm looking for a point of view from a new author who will represent um, a group of people that look like my students. Like my students just learn better if they see people like them and they know that they're in a safe space. On top of it all, I love fiction. I love Murderbot. That was super fun, right? Such a great series. There's a new one out that's just waiting for me on my Kindle. I can't wait to read it. Um, I love The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. Oh, my gosh. That book. I liked teaming. I love The Fearless Organization. So basically, her research work is why psychological safety is a term that you hear at all. Um, somebody read some of her papers at Google. They may have popularized it through their rework writing, but it's it's Amy and this book. It's zero filler. You can read it all the way to the end. It's full of anecdotes and it's just a delight to read. I think I should be her agent. I'm just always happy to tell people to read her book. Um, I like to refer people still, though there's not a lot of diversity there to, you know, what I call the entrepreneur's trilogy, uh, which is of course, um, lean startup business model generation. And I still like four steps, of the epiphany it's oh, ugly, but the oh. knowledge there is such a big knowledge bomb. I, I agree. He, I like his blog. If you're going to read Steve blank, read the blog. Um, and that, that it's dense, but it's so friggin' good. That's why I think, I think, I think we needed Eric Reese to come out and write uh, the way he did. I mean, he's truncated a lot of what <laughs> blank Reese, but I'm telling you, I could listen to that guy and you've met him. I mean, you actually, you went to his ranch house and visited with him uh, to learn from him. But as I listen to him on video, he just seems so inviting and accommodating. I bet he was just very gracious uh, with his time, but the, to, in terms of business development, that may be the best book that's ever written, which is which is probably a strong point. Uh, you can read Lean and that book and learn completely different things. I mean, there's an overlap, but it's not a complete overlap. And I think what you get from Lean that you don't get from Steve is this iterative mind that's constantly testing and getting data and testing any data. With Steve... It's an entirely new mindset for many people. I mean, I know it came out a while ago, but, you know, what William Gibson said, the future is already here, but it's unevenly distributed. That's very true of a lot of business knowledge. And so with Steve Blank, his 
he just flipped everything on its head. So when you say a startup is not a business, it's a group of people seeking a business. I was like, mind blown. That's right. You know, they don't know who they're going to be as a company. They don't know what's needed. They're just constantly trying to learn as fast as they can, you know, or talking about customer development um, and customer discovery as who is actually going to want this product or better yet, what product do these people actually want? You know, again, he just keeps taking things that everybody knows, flipping them on their head. And then through that new perspective, you can be significantly more successful. But I don't need to sing the praises of Steve Blank. I think he's from, from his house. I think he's doing quite OK. Um, I just always think that when you're starting out, getting that under your belt is really useful. Those three books, because yes. then you can dive into the harder stuff for sure. Again, this has been fantastic. I want to be your agent because I just love your books. We didn't even talk about Pencil Me In. That will be in the show notes. Uh, again, again, excellent, excellent. And I own it. Uh, I've been trying to go through it. Uh, if you know, if you're a fan of Dan Pink, he says everyone needs to learn uh, do art. So you're kind of my starting point. This may inspire you. I could not have written The Team That Managed Itself if I hadn't written Pencil Me In. So... When I, if you remember, I wrote in the pencil me in forward that I have a fine arts background and that's not what I needed at all to do certain kinds of work. I needed to be able to take ideas and make them into pictures so other people would understand them. And by pictures, I think the two by two is an underrated picture. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, talking about the Boston Consulting Group's graph or my four E's model, thinking of the way I laid out the nine factors of successful teams, that all came out of starting to think visually. And a friend of mine and I have coined the term info meme. Uh, so InfoMeme is a quick drawing you can put on a whiteboard or whatever that spreads its idea. And the great example of it is, of course, the Lean Startup Circle, Build, Measure, Learn. Anybody can draw that on a whiteboard in two seconds, and therefore that idea goes everywhere. So I think a very simple book that teaches you just some real fundamentals of how to express your concepts visually and not prettily helps product managers, helps general managers, helps folks like me who are just trying to get new ideas out there in the world. It's just such a vital skill. So Mark, I'm going to have to ask you to suck it up, pour yourself a big glass of wine, curl up on the couch with a notebook and make some bad pictures. Hey, this has been amazing. I owe you. If you're ever in uh, Columbia, Missouri, we will roll out the red carpet for you. As a uh, as someone who went to school in Missouri and had family in Warrensburg forever, I miss the barbecue. So I'm down. I'm coming. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. If I were developing a world-class organizational health team, I'd have three members. Judy Johnson, who has been on the show, Brian Jones, one of my all-time favorite consultants and part of Lencioni's Table Group. He's also been on the show. And then finally, Christina Watke herself. Yep. She's that good. Again, Christina, thank you very much. Again, her book is Radical Focus, the second edition. We briefly mentioned her other book, The Team That Managed Itself. Get it, read it, apply it. It's great too. And remember, Christina is a design person. Her other book is Pencil Me In. Next week, this is going to be a fun interview. If you are a fan of Alan Mulally and the book American Icon, one of my favorites, And you'll enjoy my discussion with Bryce Hoffman, who wrote about what led to Ford's success while dodging bankruptcy and a global financial crisis while Mullally was running that organization. He was the outsider who turned around Ford, and we'll get the inside scoop from Bryce, along with other key insights in his book, American Icon. Thank you for listening. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.